Okay, so we are in session two, and we, in, for the remainder of our time before lunch, I want to talk about what I call waiting, the ten most important unfulfilled prophecies in Scripture. And, uh, you know, I grew up hunting, and uh, we grew up in Texas, and, and my dad uh, would take me hunting from, you know, junior high, high school on, really. Uh, mostly white-tailed deer, but we did a little quail and dove hunting and a lot of turkey hunting as well. But there's nothing quite like sitting in a deer stand and uh, early in the morning before the sun comes up. And, you know, of course, as a young teenager, I'm just imagining the massive buck that's going to appear as soon as the light breaks through and, uh, you know, reading magazines all the way as my dad was driving us to the hunting Lease, uh, magazine, these hunting magazines and just picturing these massive Boone and Crockett trophy bucks, you know. But as light begins to come up and you can just start to make out uh, uh, things, you, you begin to see what you're just sure is going to be a massive, you know, brilliant 11-point buck. Something like this one that I caught on my game camera not a few years ago. Uh, and that's what I'm picturing it's, it's going to be. So I'm straining to see, is it moving? Do I hear anything? Uh, you know, minutes turn into what seem like hours as the, as the sun slowly begins to creep up above the horizon until finally this huge buck that I've seen in my mind turns into nothing but a, basically a bush and a big branch, right? And so I'm so, so disappointed. Uh, Waiting, waiting. What are you waiting for? You know, waiting is a word that has a lot of nuances in our English language. We wait at a red light. Uh, you do a little more of that around here than I do in the mountains of Colorado. Uh, a child waits for his or her birthday. We wait for the game to start. We wait for that first snowfall. You probably don't wait much for that around here. We wait for quitting time. We wait for our ship to come in. What are you waiting for? Well, as we think about Bible prophecy, as I mentioned, 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. I don't know about you, but I wish Jesus would hurry up and come back. Amen? Amen. <laughs> it reminds me of the story that I read one time about the elderly a couple who had been married more than 50 years, and the old lady was absolutely a ball of fire. I mean, always on the go, just, just go, 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 on top of things. The old man, uh, by contrast, was always very slow and deliberate and intentional. And, well, one night they were awakened at their old farmhouse by a commotion in the chicken house, in the chicken coop. The old lady springs out of bed, runs to the chicken house, and soon found the cause of the racket, which was a large black snake that had gotten into the coop. Well, having nothing to whack it with, she stomped her bare foot down on the head and pinned it there. And there she stood, waiting for her husband for what seemed like an eternity. It's probably more like 10 or 15 minutes, but it seemed forever. And when the old man finally arrived, he was fully dressed and even had his pocket watch in place and he said to his disheveled and enraged wife ah well if I'd known you had him I wouldn't have hurried down here <laughs> I wish Jesus would hurry up and come back Amen. you know I look at my granddaughter and my younger children all of my children and I think what kind of a world are they going to grow up in David said in Psalm 27, by the way, the, the header in the Hebrew here is an exuberant declaration of faith in the chapter, Psalm 27. But at the end here, he says, I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. One of the passages we looked at in the first session, again, I come back to often in Romans 8, is the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. 
And he goes on, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Waiting, waiting. So I want to just kind of zero in on the ten most important unfulfilled prophecies that we're waiting for. And, you know, in, in a short weekend conference like this, obviously we can't go through blow by blow everything like I do in my book, What Lies Ahead, or my Spirit of the Antichrist books. But these are just ten that I think uh, you'll be certainly familiar with, but it just makes my top ten list. Nothing, you know, sacrosanct about these ten. You might have a different top ten list, but these are ten that I thought we would take a session to go over. Obviously, the first one is the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward, and that is the rapture of the church the rapture of the church the rapture refers to the sudden catching up of believers to meet the lord in the air when he returns at the close of the present age so if we go back to my end times chart we're going to as we work our way through these top 10 prophecies we're going to start on the left and work our way chronologically through time so the the rapture is this great rescue and it's the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward now it is imminent and uh, we have a, a, a video on the imminency of the rapture. I, I'm not sure if we have any DVDs left, but it's available as a streaming video. But the doctrine of imminency is a key doctrine. Imminency means could happen at any moment. And we believe the rapture could happen at any moment. In other words, there are no prophecies that have to take place before the rapture could happen. It could happen today. It could have happened 10 years ago. It could have happened in the Middle Ages. It could have happened in Paul's day. Uh, and it, it seems clear enough that that's the case. By the way, that's one of the many reasons that we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, not only because the Bible explicitly teaches it, uh, but also because if the rapture happens any time in the midst of other prophecies, it's no longer imminent. And the passages in Scripture that talk about eagerly waiting make no sense. In other words, if the rapture wasn't going to happen until three and a half years after the Antichrist takes over a one-world system and signs a peace treaty with Israel then why would the Bible tell us to eagerly wait for something we know is not going to happen at least for three and a half years? We know when the peace treaty, we would know when the peace treaty were signed, right? We would know when we're in a one world system. We would know when the Antichrist is ruling the world. And so it just, it just doesn't make any sense to be eagerly waiting. If you know, you know, the big game, you know, is not going to happen until Sunday, you're not going to grab your popcorn and your, you know, soda and sit down on the couch on Tuesday, right? Because oh, I'm not going to sit here for four days or five days. I know it's not going to, right? So eagerly waiting, that apekdekamai is the Greek word, makes no sense unless we believe in the imminency of the rapture. That's not the only biblical proof text and theological proof text of imminency. You can prove it theologically and exegetically as well. But to me, that's the simplest way to explain it to people. Why would you eagerly wait for something that you know is not going to happen until in a certain point, point in time? But the doctrine of imminency of the rapture means it could happen at any moment. So real quick, just to, to walk us through this chart, because we're going to come back to it again and again. It starts with the rapture. That's the next great prophetic event on God's timetable. That starts the clock ticking on that final 16% of the Bible. Then you have an unspecified length of time following the rapture when the world is you know, hurtled into chaos. I'm going to talk about that in the worship hour tomorrow in a message I'm titling One Minute After the Rapture. Uh, preached that about six years ago let's see yeah about 2017 um, and once or twice since then but it's been years uh, and as I was re going over it again and kind of tweaking it and preparing it for this conference I'm just reminded again about all that is packed into this one prophecy the rapture and so Sunday morning uh, at the 10 o'clock hour or the worship hour we're going to talk about uh, seven things that will be true for believers one minute after the rapture and ten things that will be true for unbelievers, those left behind on earth one, one minute after the rapture. Uh, so you got this unspecified length of time, and I'm going to talk about the chaos that will ensue. But at some point after the rapture, the Antichrist is going to rise to the fore and sign a peace treaty that will start the clock ticking for seven years on the Antichrist's reign of terror. That seven-year period is variously referred to in Scripture as the day of uh, uh, the Lord's wrath, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, of course, that 490-year plan of Daniel. Uh, it's just called the seven-year tribulation in some places. 
But the first three and a half years of that, he will keep his treaty with Israel, and, and he will not bring his, the, the full force of his military global might against Israel. But at the midpoint, he's going to break the treaty, set himself up as God in the temple, demand that everyone worship him, claim to be God, and then it's going to be utter persecution for the nation of Israel in the final three and a half years. Uh, and then at the end of the seven years, you've got the second coming in the Battle of Armageddon. And then according to Daniel uh, chapter 12, you've got uh, a, 75, a combined 75-day period. Chapter 11 mentions 30 additional days uh, after the tribulation. Verse 12 mentions another 45 days. And so you've got this 75-day transitional period after Christ comes back until the, com the formal commencement or inauguration of the millennial reign of Christ. And then that gets us into the, the Messianic kingdom, the first thousand years of which is on the old earth, and the final, the rest of it in perpetuity. That's why the timeline there has an arrow, because at the end of the millennium, time shall be no more, and we enter the new heavens and the new earth, uh, and, and the Bible has thus come full circle once again. So the first prophecy that we want to talk about here is the rapture. And the key passage, of course, is 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, meaning their physical bodies will be resurrected. Remember, Paul said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So ultimately, everyone in the, in the eternal state is going to have to have a glorified body. So those believers in the present church age that have died... They are in the presence of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But their bodies, their physical atoms that make up their physicality are in the grave or wherever they are, burned up, lost at sea, wherever they may be. But at the rapture, the very atoms that constitute that matter will come back together. This mortal must put on immortality. This corruption must put on, this incorruption must... This corruptible must put on incorruption, uh, for, again, 1 Corinthians 15, and we will all be changed. And so they, they, you know, those very atoms will be reconstituted and given a glorified body, reunited with their soul. Those of us who don't experience death because we're alive at the time of the rapture, we don't have a resurrection because we've never died, but we do have a translation and we're changed. And so that's what he's talking about when he says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then he goes on again, the, those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, people that uh, don't believe in the rapture, uh, the, 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 you know, they'll say things like, well, you know, the word rapture is not used a single time in Scripture. Well, that's ignorant and patently and provably false. The word's actually, well, actually they're right. It, it's not used a single time in Scripture. It's used 13 times in Scripture. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the Bible wasn't written in English. So we could just as easily say the word God's not in Scripture, right? Because the Bible wasn't written in English. But the Greek or Hebrew words, in this case with the rapture, we're talking about a Greek word, that are translated rapture are in fact used in Scripture. And it's the Greek word harpazo, which means to snatch or take away. And as I said, it's used 13 times. Um, and in the context, it means to threaten from, uh, to rescue from threatening danger. This is the standard Greek dictionary. It's called BDAG, Bauer, Denker, Art, and Gingrich is the acronym there, the four guys that put it together. And it means to rescue from threatening danger. So if you go back to 1 Thess 4, 17, we who are alive and remain shall be rescued, harpazo, uh, from threatening danger. By the way, in Latin, when Jerome translated the Greek New Testament into Latin, he used the Greek word, the Latin word rapire, or rapture, to translate harpazo. So that's where the word rapture comes from. It's thoroughly biblical, and it means to be caught up and rescued from threatening danger. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes it this way, In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Don't be confused by the reference to the last trumpet there. This is where a lot of bad end times teaching comes from. There are a lot of trumpets in Scripture. Last doesn't mean last one ever on the face of the earth. It means the last one of this age. There are lots of trumpets relative to the judgments during the seven-year tribulation. In fact, there are seven of them. There's trumpets associated with the second coming. There are trumpets associated with the fall of Jericho. The seventh one of those was the last trumpet at that time. That doesn't mean it was the end of the age. So last trumpet doesn't mean last one ever. It means last one in the present age, signaling the rapture and the uh, return of Christ to rescue the church. The first time the rapture was ever even alluded to by God on planet Earth was the very night that Jesus was betrayed in the garden. 
Thursday night of Passion Week, he, has, he celebrates the Passover in the upper room with his disciples. And you remember he said these words, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, he doesn't call it the rapture. He's not giving the detailed doctrine that Paul would later give in 1 Thessalonians about the rapture under the inspiration of the Spirit. But he's alluding to this you know, event that uh, later uh, is expounded upon in Scripture. So that was 33 A.D., uh, 18 years later, as Paul, on his second missionary journey, writes his first letter to the Thessalonians in 51 A.D., the Spirit of God uh, leads Paul to disclose this mystery that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, of the rapture. A mystery in Scripture is something previously unrevealed, now being explained, now being disclosed by God or unveiled by God. Mystery doesn't mean confusing or hard to understand. It just means new. And so you don't find the rapture in the Old Testament, just like you don't find the church in the Old Testament. The church itself is a mystery. Ephesians chapter 3 makes that clear. So the Old Testament, is certain, the, the, the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the rapture for the church doesn't contradict the Old Testament. The Old Testament plainly allows for this uh, new, you know, progressive revelation that God is unveiling, uh, but it is new. And so you're not going to find the doctrine of the rapture in the Old Testament. The Old Testament emphasizes the national promises to Israel. The New Testament represents God's work in and through the church, the Jew and Gentile in one body. Um, so the first time ever that the rapture is alluded to is uh, the uh, night of Passover in the upper room in 33 uh, A.D. Uh, so what else happens in connection with the rapture? Well, let's look at a few events that occur uh, related to the rapture. I already mentioned one, our glorified bodies, uh, and we'll come back to that. We're going to meet the Lord face to face. We're going to have a reunion with our loved ones in the sky. We're going to receive rewards for our faithfulness on earth. Remember, uh, well, actually, I think I'm going to come back to that in a second, so I'll hold off on that. Marriage of the Lamb takes place in heaven uh, while all hell is breaking loose on earth after the rapture. Uh, and so we see, again, uh, as I mentioned in the first session, this idea of apec decamite, those who eagerly wait for the return of the Lord. It's used seven times in Scripture, and all seven times Apec Decamai refers to the rapture, every single one of them. And by the way, uh, all seven times it's by Paul, if you believe, as I do, that Paul wrote Hebrews. Now, we can't prove that. We don't know for sure, so I wouldn't die on that hill, but I think the overwhelming evidence is that Paul wrote Hebrews, which would make it the last letter that he wrote, uh, rather than 2 Timothy. But if we just leave Hebrews anonymous the way Scripture does, then six of the seven usages of Apec Decamai are by Paul. The seventh is by the writer of Hebrews. And again, they all look forward to the blessed hope, uh, to, to eagerly look for something with hope, to be in a continual state of expectancy. And again, if the rapture is not imminent, then that makes no sense. The use of that term makes no sense. Uh, we wouldn't wake up today and be eagerly looking for the return of Christ if we know that it's going to be at least three and a half years, if some people say it's mid-trib, or seven years if it's post-trib. And none of that makes any sense. Uh, so here's one of those occurrences uh, in 1 Thess 1.10, where we are to wait, again, apec decamai, not translated eagerly wait here, but it's the same word, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, what's important to understand about that is twice in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul promises that believers are not going to have to go through the wrath of God. That's a key doctrine to understand, is that as a believer, you're a child of God, not a child of wrath. You're no longer under the wrath of God if you've trusted in Christ and have been declared righteous by faith. So when the prophetic wrath of God that the Old Testament prophets talk about is referred to as the great day of the Lord's wrath or just the day of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge is what one prophet called it. When that starts, then you, you believers are not going to be here because he's delivering us from that wrath that's to come. Not through the wrath or in the midst of the wrath, but from the wrath that is to come. So you're delivered from that. In chapter 5, verse 9, he goes on to say, God has not appointed us, the believers of the church age, to go through that wrath. So when we think about the rapture, the question I think that we need to ask, are you eagerly waiting for his return? You should be, right? We should be. Um, 
something that I got from my grandfather years ago that we recreated is what we call the rapture placard. And this is something that we put up. Uh, I have one by my office door. At our, you know, I have an office at my house. Uh, and then uh, we, we also have these available out on the table out there. But let me just read this for you because this left an impression on me as a young man. I still have the original one that my grandparents, who are both with the Lord, had. But it, it's, it was tattered and torn. And it was by their doorbell every house they lived in when we would visit them. And theirs was worded a little bit differently. We've changed the wording slightly uh, through the years, but it says, as believers in Jesus, it says, to whom it may concern, as believers in Jesus Christ, the members of this household will be called into his presence one day soon. And when this happens, we and millions of other believers will be transported from this fallen world to our home in heaven in the twinkling of an eye. Do not be deceived by any false explanation of our disappearance. This event called the rapture, uh, this event called the rapture and the seven years of tribulation that will follow are clearly prophesied in the Bible. And I list the references. Do not search for us. We will return with Christ when he comes to judge the Antichrist and establish an earthly kingdom of peace and righteousness. We implore you to place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. This is the only way you will be able to receive eternal life and be rescued from the penalty of sin, hell. Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So if we really believe in the imminency of the rapture, and we really believe in the blessed hope, and we really are eagerly expecting and eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord, why wouldn't we leave something like this behind for those in the chaos that follows the rapture, which we're going to talk about tomorrow in the worship hour, uh, to have some presentation of the gospel and some explanation of what has happened. The next on my top ten list would be related to the rapture, the glorification of our bodies. I want you to, to think for a moment with me how long our bodies have been under attack. I mean, we think in terms of, you know, our age, I'm, I'll be 55 next month, um, which gets younger and younger every year. I can remember when 55 was like, that is so old. I can't believe somebody's that old. And now I woke up and I'm 55, you know. But... Uh, you know, for us, we think of the attacks on our body in terms of years and months, right? But in terms of mankind, it's millennia. You know, Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, they didn't have to deal with that. Their bodies were perfect, right? They didn't have pain, suffering. They would, had they not sinned, they would have lived forever, right? It's the reason, you know... Uh, uh, you know, when God put Adam to sleep, it wasn't to to take the you know to perform the ribectomy to get to create Eve. It wasn't because you know people think oh he he was God was protecting him. It was pretty painful to have a rib removed. Yeah, well it would have been had sin been in the world. Sin wasn't in the world yet. Why did God put Adam to sleep? Simply because he didn't want Adam to have any say in the matter. You know, he didn't want to say oh how about blonde hair, blue eyes. You know, a little more hair, a little less there. He just Put him to sleep. Here, here she is. And he took one look and said, wow, man. And that's why they call her woman. But anyway, um, not really. Um, but uh, sh there was no pain. And had they not sinned, there wouldn't be. But ever since sin entered the world, our bodies have been under attack, facing disease and injury and malformity. And someday, that's going to be a thing of the past, right? And... Um, this mortal will put on immortality, as I said. So that happens at the same time as the rapture here, uh, the glorification of our bodies. And uh, again, going back to 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive and remain will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, this incorruption, this, this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. And we're all waiting for the redemption of our uh, bodies. One of the charts that we have in our charts chart book is a biblical overview of when our bodies will be resurrected so you know when will old testament believers get their glorified bodies when will a church age believer which is what we're talking about right here get you know his or her resurrected body what about tribulation believers what about millennial believers because remember at the end of the tribulation there will be some people who got saved during the tribulation period um uh, and, and are the ones to whom Jesus says, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. They're the ones that will populate the earth. We'll be in the kingdom too, as will you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, all of them. But we'll be in our glorified bodies. But there has to be some people on earth during the millennial kingdom to populate the earth. And so those people, 
will have children and their children during the millennium will be born dead in their trespasses and sins like all sons of Adam and they will need to be saved. And so those believers who get saved during the millennium will have to be translated ultimately before we can enter the new heavens and the new earth because again, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. But all unbelievers will face the resurrection uh, to the second death uh, at the great white throne judgment at the end of the uh, kingdom. So all of these charts are, as I mentioned, are in the chart book. The third uh, prophecy on my uh, top ten list, if you will, is the judgment seat of Christ, or the Bema judgment. Uh, comes from the Greek word Bema, and it referred to that raised platform in the agora of first century Greco-Roman world where uh, Roman magistrates would sit and, and rule in judgment over disputes. So you had a dispute with someone, you take it to the, the Bema, and, and then you state your case, and then the magistrate would rule. Well, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul uh, uses that first century common cultural thing to refer to a future time when we will all, as believers, appear before the judgment seat, as it were, of Christ. Now, this is not a judgment as to whether or not we get into heaven or hell, because again, comparing scripture to scripture, that issue is already settled, right? Jesus said, if you believe in me, you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. So it's not a judgment to get into heaven or hell. That issue happens the moment we trust Christ. You realize that you get eternal life the moment you believe, not when you die. If you've trusted Christ, you have eternal life right now. It just so happens the first so many years of it are in this sin-stricken body and this sin-stricken world and someday we'll pass from this world to the next. You don't get eternal life when you die, you get eternal life when you believe the gospel. So you're either walking around as a dead man, never having been reborn, or you've been reborn and now your citizenship is in heaven, you're just temporarily dwelling here on earth. So this judgment seat sometimes can be uh, confusing because you know people think, oh, this is when we get to find out when we're going to heaven. And sadly, a lot of people think that way. You know, I can't tell you how many funerals and things I've done or been to through the years, and people will say things like, well, this person, man, he was a good person, and I'm sure that when he got to heaven, he, he found out, you know, he was going to get in. Well, you don't have to wait till you die. You can know today. You can know right now. That's the doctrine of assurance. These things have I written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, First John 5, 13. So this judgment of Christ is another thing that happens in conjunction with the rapture in that intervening time, or at least it begins. We don't actually know what that looks like, especially since it happens outside the realm of time, space, and matter in the heavenlies. Does this last the whole seven years? Is it instantaneous? We don't really know. But we can certainly say that it happens after the rapture. And many of the rewards that we will get at the Bema uh, are related to positions of service in the kingdom. So we know that whatever... However it takes place, it has to be completed by the time of the second coming. So I kind of put it here in that intervening time between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. We don't really know for sure, but certainly it has to happen after the rapture and before the second coming. There are many eschatological judgments, another one of our charts, uh, eschatological meaning end times or last things. This is the first one. Uh, and the judgment seat of Christ, again, is about rewards for faithful service during our earthly life. It's not about uh, entrance into heaven or not. Uh, and it's only rewards. So there are no punitive damages, no punishment. Believers never face punishment. We can be disciplined and, and are disciplined as we walk in the flesh and get away from the Lord or backslide or whatever. The Lord, like a, like a father, lovingly you know, uh, disciplines us and so forth. But uh, there's no punishment. No, no one's going to stand before the judgment seat and get a big spanking from the Lord. I mean, that wouldn't really be much of a blessed hope, right? Um, and so there are false teachings out there that suggest that if you're a really bad Christian on earth, you're going to be punished and cast into Gehenna and weeping and gnashing your teeth for a thousand years. But don't worry, at the end of that thousand years, you'll be let free to, to go into the kingdom. Yeah, that's just completely mishandling of Scripture. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ is only about reward or lack of reward. Um, and we have a whole chapter on this in my book, What Lies Ahead. But you can see some of the other judgments. I think we'll get to some of those uh, later on in this presentation.
But the key passage here is 2 Corinthians 5. We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So again, uh, you know, if uh, in, in, in the kingdom, it, it, in heaven, it'll be a positive experience for everybody. We already read in the first session, no weeping, no sorrow, no tears. It's positive. It's a, it's a place of blessing. But it will be inherently more blessing for some than others, depending on how faithful we have been. And that reward is not based on what we do, but how we do it. Because uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, where it talks about each one work will be declared in that day, it goes on to say it's the counsels of the heart that determine the issue. So I believe there will be a lot of believers who did a lot of checklist things in their Christian walk. You know, I read my Bible this many minutes a day and I give this much money to the church and I do this and I never cuss, dipped or chewed or date girls who do that kind of thing. But they may not be rewarded appropriately because they were doing it to be seen by men. But I think it's the unassuming believer who is faithful and pure-hearted before the Lord, trusting the Lord day by day. And we may be surprised who heaps up, remember that word, uh, 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 accumulate there is to heap up or accumulate we may be surprised at who gets more rewards than others right because some people have their reward already on on earth um, so it's the counsels of the heart and so you know as jesus talks about in uh, luke chapter uh, 19 uh, while he's away going to receive the kingdom someday he's going to come back to inaugurate the kingdom but while he's gone we're supposed to be at work uh, doing business until he comes and and in the parable there, he gives everyone one mina, which is kind of your life of service. And as a believer, a child of God, we have one life to live, and we ought to be living it faithfully for the Lord. And to the extent that we walk by faith and not by sight and live for the Lord, we'll be, recorded, we'll be rewarded accordingly. Some people, he might say, hey, great job, well done. You're, I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. To the next believer, he might say, good job. I'm going to put you in charge of ten to five cities. To some believers, he may say, hey, welcome to the kingdom, <laughs> you know. You didn't perform, you didn't particularly live well during your Christian life. You're still a citizen, you're a child of mine, but I'm not going to give you a stewardship in the kingdom if you didn't prove yourself faithful with the stewardship you had on earth, right? So it's all the counsel of the heart. Again, Jesus says at the end of the Bible, behold, I am coming quickly, my reward is with me. And every New Testament writer references this idea of rewards for believers from the church age. Here's Paul in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Inheritance there is not talking about uh, eternal life because, again, eternal life is not something we get based on what we do. We get eternal life as a free gift received simply by faith. I mentioned this verse earlier. We want to abide in him, that is, remain in close fellowship with him. Uh, it's the same word, by the way that Jesus used repeatedly in that same upper room passage where he alludes to the rapture that I talked about earlier. He, in chapter 15, he tells the disciples, and by the time he's telling them this, Judas has already left, so it's just the 11 closest disciples who were all believers. We know Judas was not a believer but because the Bible tells us that, but the 11 believers were there, and Jesus is commanding them, hey, abide in me. I'm about to be gone, and while I'm gone, you're going to need to abide in me. So abide doesn't mean get saved. It would be nonsensical for Jesus to tell the 11 disciples how to get saved. He's telling them to re the word abide means to remain, to be in close fellowship with. Stick with me, he's saying. And by the way, in that, that was 60 years earlier in 33 AD. In that same upper room, Jesus tells the disciples, someday the Holy Spirit's going to bring to your remembrance the things I'm telling you right now. Now fast forward 60 years to the mid-90s. John, the apostle, who was sitting right beside Jesus in the upper room, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is writing this first letter. And what does he do? He says the same thing Jesus told him 60 years old, earlier. Abide in me. Stay close to the Lord so that when he appears, you'll be confident. In his second letter, he says the same thing. He doesn't use the word abide, but he says, look to yourselves that you don't lose what you've worked for. Again, can't be talking about eternal life because the Bible makes it clear we don't get eternal life based on our works. But he says that you may receive a full reward. The passage I alluded to earlier, well done, a good and faithful servant in Luke 19. So the judgment seat of Christ or the Bayman. Again, I have a whole chapter in that in my book that you see on the right there, What Lies Ahead. Uh, number four on my top ten list is the unveiling of the Antichrist. Now you say, well, why would this be so important? 
Well, it, it's because, you know, it's, we're, we're, we're like, it's like we're watching at a big game the opposing football team come out, onto the, out of the tunnel and onto the field. And, of course, we're rooting for the other guys, and so we're booing, and we're, gonna, we're saying we're going to crush them. Well, in the cosmic struggle between God and Satan, when the Antichrist rises to the fore, and I explain my view of why, how I think that happens in uh, my book, What Lies Ahead, it's just my speculation. We, we don't know for sure exactly what propels him to world fame, but I have you know, a, a reasoned explanation for that. But when we see that happening, we know the end is near. And it's like, we can, you know, we'll be in heaven, but we can, when we see that beginning to happen, we can say, man, this fool has no idea what he's headed into. He has no idea what's coming. Just seven years later, he is going to be crushed. Exactly the way the Bible predicts at the beginning. Remember, you can't understand the end if you don't understand the beginning. And in Genesis 3.15, we learn that he's going to be utterly crushed. And so the unveiling of the Antichrist is very important. And this, of course, happens when he signs the peace treaty uh, at the beginning of the tribulation. And then he has, you know, some people have 15 minutes of fame. He has his seven minutes of, I mean, seven years of fame, as you might say. Uh, but it will be short-lived. Uh, who is the Antichrist? Well, that's a good, if you have nothing better to do tonight when you go home, just go to your favorite search engine and type in who is the Antichrist. It's quite fun. Um, I did it, and uh, here's some of the things that come up. Uh, Pope Francis, he's a perennial favorite, the whole one world religion. I have a whole chapter in volume two of Spirit of the Antichrist that talks about Pope Francis and Pope Benedict before him and the way they play a role in the coming one world religion. The former prime minister of Greece was a favorite for a while there. He was the prime minister until 2019, Alexis Tsipras. Um, why do people think this guy was the Antichrist? Well, he had a sudden appearance. Uh, a couple of years earlier, he was just a nobody, a militant communist, but that's it. Nobody really knew about him, but very quickly he becomes the wildly popular prime minister of Greece. Plus, he's an atheist, and the Bible tells us the Antichrist is going to have no regard for any God. A lot of people would say, oh, Barack Obama, right? Uh, he was, uh, you know, fits the bill in, in a number of ways, forsaking the God of his fathers, and also no regard for women. I'll just leave it at that, um, if you know much about his history. Uh, from Chicago. Uh, anyway, you got Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. Uh, he assumed office May 14th, 2017. That's Israel's birthday. Ah, he must be the Antichrist. Plus, and this really seals the deal for me, he won the election by, uh, with 66.6% of the vote. So clearly, clearly he's the Antichrist. Uh, what about uh, Jared Kushner? Wow, I mean, he was the uh, former president's uh, de facto chief negotiator for Middle East peace. He rose to the ranks of world power very quickly, being appointed by uh, President Trump. Uh, he's made multiple trips to the Middle East, uh, and they were always shrouded in mystery. Um, but uh, to me, the biggest uh, proof that he must be the Antichrist is that, uh, what year was this? Uh, oh, I forgot to write down the year. Fairly recently, I think it was in the last 10 years, he purchased a tower at 666 Fifth Avenue in Midtown, Manhattan, uh, and he purchased it for 600, uh, well, for $1.8 billion, which, if you divide that by three, is 600 million, 666. So, I mean, you can get there, if you really, is, is my point. Uh, this guy's the founder of the trend, or no, this is uh, Putin, big time perennial favorite. Uh, and uh, then this guy's the founder of the Transhumanist Party. He ran for uh, president back in 2016. He denounces all forms of morality, calling morality chains. And uh, 2nd Thess 2 says the Antichrist is going to be a man of lawlessness. So yes, this guy fits the bill for that. Uh, he also voluntarily had his hand implanted with an RFID chip. Um, so clearly he understands the mark of the beast. Um, and then you got Bill Gates, speaking of the mark of the beast. Uh, if you... Uh, uh, put Bill Gates' name in ASCII code, all caps, Bill Gates 3, Roman numeral 3, uh, and you convert that into a series of numbers, it equals 666, as does Windows 95, MS-DOS 6.11. Another piece of evidence in, is in the old Excel 95, now I'm really dating myself, but in the old Excel 95, when you press Control-Alt-Shift while clicking the tech support button in the About Microsoft Excel, well, 
windows opens up a doom-like hallway that's labeled the Hall of Tortured Souls. Uh, some software, software engineers really had too much time on their hands and would do these kinds of things, and of course they would leak out. But uh, clearly this is proof of a hidden code which Gates is going to use to take over uh, the world. And then, obviously, this one kind of settles it all, but a lot of people said it was Donald Trump because the Bible says the Lord is going to return at the last Trump. So, of course, he must be uh, the Antichrist. Well, whoever he is, he won't unveil himself until after the rapture. And John tells us that one Antichrist, capital A, is coming, and many Antichrists, little a, have come. The whole premise of my two-volume set that just came out is that the spirit of the Antichrist, 1 John 4, 3, is already at work in the world. Well, if that's the case, we know a lot about the Antichrist. The Bible has a lot of real estate that deals with characteristics of the Antichrist. We can take a look at what that man of sin is going to be doing, and if, if that spirit's already here, the closer we get to his arrival, we ought to see an upsurge in those characteristics. And indeed, that's what we see. So the Antichrist is variously referred to in Scripture as the little horn, the prince that shall come, the willful king, the one who makes desolation, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the lawless one. The Revelation calls him the beast or the beast out of the sea. Uh, he is a future personal individual who will be the central world figure during that final seven-year period called Daniel's 70th week. The word week in Hebrew is Shabua. It means a seven-year period in context. So the final seven, the 70th seven-year period or that final seven years of the 490-year plan. He's going to be indwelt, I believe, by Satan and Jesus will destroy him at his second coming at the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, the Bible tells us he comes out of that last uh, pagan empire, the Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire, uh, because the revived Roman Empire is going to have two components, symbolized by the five toes on one foot and the five toes on the other in, in Nebuchadnezzar's statue, just as the original Roman Empire had the western and eastern half with Constantinople and Rome, the, I believe the revived Roman Empire will have the same split uh, geographically, so therefore he could be European or he could be Middle Eastern. We just uh, don't know if he's from Eastern Europe, he would be Middle Eastern perhaps. Uh, he's associated with the false prophet. Actually, the false prophet works at his behest. It's kind of like Batman and Robin, or the president and vice president. We'll just say that. Uh, but anyway, that's the Antichrist and the second in command. It's the, it's the false prophet that actually is the one who controls the economy, working again for the Antichrist. Uh, I believe he won't be Jewish. Some Bible teachers t suggest that he is Jewish. I just can't see that from Scripture, Daniel 11:37, especially where he does not have any religious affiliation. But also, it's pretty clear from Daniel's prophecy that Antiochus Epiphanes is a uh, prefigurement or symbolic foreshadowing of the Antichrist. And he was clearly Gentile. So it just wouldn't make any sense for Daniel to use that under the inspiration of the Spirit if the Antichrist was going to be Jewish. Uh, so I think he's a Gentile ruler who comes out of probably a European world leader. Uh, and attempts to control the world and its religious uh, you know, expressions. Um, so the Antichrist will, of course, impact the world like never before. And that's really the premise of these two books that I've talked about. Uh, you know, we outline in Volume 1 exactly what the Antichrist will do and how he plays a role. And then we just take current events and look at all the spirits of the Antichrist that are already out there and how that's setting the stage for the return of the Lord. The closer we get... To the tribulation, or as Jan Markell says, if we're trending toward the tribulation, that means the rapture's got to be even closer. Another one on my top ten list is the outpouring of God's wrath. And, and, and why is this important? Because it's the great equalizer. It's when justice will be served. It's when God gets the vengeance. All the inequities and unfairness of life that we have to endure right now, all the times we say, why God? This is it. This is like the hero in one of those movies about a victim who gets vengeance, and by the end of the movie, the audience is cheering because all is right. You know, the, the, the antagonist loses, and this is what we're going to see when God pours out his wrath. So again, this is the great day of the Lord's wrath, that seven-year period. Um, if you look at the book of Revelation, which is the easiest book in the Bible to outline, it starts in chapter 1 with the unveiling of the Christ, the, the uh, book, uh, last book of the Bible is called The Revelation, not Revelations, plural. Uh, and uh, whenever I hear a Bible teacher refer to it as Revelations, I just turn it off. Because if they don't even know how to pronounce the last name of the 
the name of the last book of the Bible, they're probably not going to handle the Word of God very uh, correctly. But it's the apocalypsis, the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes seven letters to seven historical churches uh, that were around in the mid-90s A.D. when it was written. And then chapters 4 and 5 set the stage for the coming wrath. In other words, it's called a theodicy. What gives God the right to pour out his wrath? Remember what we read in chapters 4 and 5? Uh, who is worthy to open the seals of God's wrath? Well, the lamb, he is worthy. Why? Because he was, his blood was shed before the foundation of the world. So, yeah, God has the right to pour out his wrath. He shed his blood at Calvary. And so then after that you know, justification for the wrath of God, what happens? The wrath of God is poured out. And the whole wrath of God is this next, you know, 18 chapter, or chapter 6 to all the way to 18. You have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, interspersed with some supplementary information, some little literary interludes where God gives us more information. They're not necessarily sequential. They're just talking about other things that are happening on earth during that seven-year period. Uh, but all of it relates to the wrath of God. You also see in Revelation during this chapter 6 to 18, the wrath of Satan. So you've got the wrath of God and the wrath of Satan. You have all this cosmic battle and supernatural things happening, demonic presence. But eventually it all culminates in the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 19. And then the rest of it is simply the kingdom with the, the millennial phase of the kingdom on the old earth followed by the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth portion of the kingdom. But all this is the wrath of God. And that's why when Christ comes back, the Bible says, he, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Completely opposite of what happens at the rapture. And we'll come back to that in a moment. By the way, how do we know that the wrath of God is already happening at the beginning of the seven years? You know, because some people try to teach, well, the wrath is the second half or halfway through the second half. you got all these different points because the Bible is clear that believers will not be here during the wrath of God. So if you are determined to put the rapture somehow in that seven-year seven period for Israel, even though it has nothing to do with the church, then you've got to push the wrath further along. So some people say, oh, the wrath doesn't happen until the midpoint. So the church is raptured, then the wrath. Or, you know, Marv Rosenthal said, no, the wrath doesn't happen until halfway through the second half. I can't even do the math, whatever that is, uh, three-quarters maybe of the way through the seven years. And, and, and then he says the wrath is only the last very bit. Well, then how do you explain the fact that in Revelation 6, when the tribulation is just starting, it says the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? They're already hiding. Those people on earth are already hiding from the wrath of God that's being poured out on the earth. And the whole seven-year period is a, uh, a time of Jacob's trouble, a time of Israel's trouble. And there's no day like it. The word day in the context here means that time of God's uh, trouble. Or Isaiah says it's the day of vengeance, right? Uh, Paul says, you know, that uh, God is storing up uh, wrath for the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's the reason we know we're not going to be, uh, you know, under that wrath. We're a child of God, not a child of wrath. Here he's talking about unbelievers whose hearts are hardened and they're, they're instruments of wrath. And again, as I mentioned earlier, Paul says twice in 1 Thessalonians that we are to be delivered from the wrath to come and God has not appointed us to suffer wrath. So the, the tribulation culminates with the second coming of Christ. That's another thing that we're waiting for. If you look back here at my chart, now we're all the way over here on the right with the second coming. And the second coming and the rapture are clearly two distinct events in Scripture. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure this out. Uh, in the, at the rapture, Christ comes in the air. We've already looked at that in 1 Thessalonians 4. At the second coming, Christ comes all the way to the earth. At the rapture, only the saved are in view. It's a time of rescue. But at the second coming, you've got the saved and the unsaved in view. He separates the sheep from the goats, right? You've got both. Uh, at the rapture, the dead in Christ are raised to life. At the second coming, the living are sent to death. What does he say to the goats? Depart from me into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. At the rapture, believers go from earth to heaven. At the second coming, Revelation 19, we are riding with him on white horses coming from heaven back to earth to help him rule and reign in the kingdom. Remember, Jesus told the disciples they would rule and reign with him on 12 thrones. They would sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom. That's the reason, by the way, that after the ascension that I alluded to earlier in, in Acts chapter 1, 
after they kind of get out of their mesmerized state and the men in white raiment says, hey, go back to Jerusalem and just wait. First thing they do is they go back to Jerusalem. And what's the first order of business in the latter part of Acts chapter 1? They cast lots to replace Matthias. I mean, to replace Judas with Matthias. Well, why was that so urgent? Well, because Jesus had told them when he comes back, they're going to sit on 12 thrones. They didn't want that 12th throne to be empty. And they thought he was coming right back. I mean, even in Acts chapter 3, Peter is talking about the times of refreshing that are coming. They expected the Lord to come back any minute. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit began to reveal through the pen of the Apostle Paul that there would be this delay, even though they should have known it. Jesus alluded to it in the parables of the kingdom. He alluded to it in Luke 19, right before the triumphal entry. So he had taught them that there's going to be this delay, but it didn't really become explicitly clear until you know, the church age was well underway. And so, uh, but at that time, the church hadn't even started yet. That was before the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 1. And so they're thinking, oh, he ran up to get the keys. He's coming right back down. He's going to inaugurate the kingdom. We better fill that 12th throne. So they replace uh, Judas. Um, but at the second coming, believers come back with Christ from heaven to earth. Some other contrasts, obviously, the rapture is followed by the tribulation, whereas the second coming is followed by the millennium. Just read it sequentially. It's, it's two different times. As I've mentioned several times, the rapture is imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment, whereas the second coming is preceded by numerous signs. But the second coming isn't going to happen at an unpredicted time. It's going to happen at a very predicted time. And yet, as Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, the people alive at that time will be deceived. And will, will, like they were in the days of Noah, when judgment was predicted, and they ignored the, the warnings, mocked Noah, and ended up being swept away by the flood in judgment. The same thing will happen in the future seven-year tribulation where people will be deceived into taking the mark of the beast. They will not, uh, even though they could have calculated the day, if they knew when the peace treaty was signed, they still will not see it coming. But it is still, nevertheless, preceded by numerous signs. The rapture, as I said, is a mystery, but the second coming is predicted repeatedly in the Old Testament. The rapture, the purpose is to rescue. The second coming, the purpose is to judge. The rapture is a message of comfort. The second coming is a message of warning and judgment. So Christ himself comes back. It's a white horse. Uh, and he who sat in him was called faithful and true. Now going back to my revelation chart, what's really fascinating is that uh, the, the tribulation period starts with the first rider on the white horse in chapter 6, verse 2. That's the Antichrist. He's going out to conquer and try to take over the world. And then after the seven years, get all the way up to chapter 19, you have another rider on a white horse. Well, what's he called? He's called faithful and true. The first rider was an imposter, the Antichrist. The second one is the real deal, Christ uh, himself. And he's coming back uh, and called faithful and true. Uh, in righteousness, he judges and makes war again, in contrast to the Antichrist who's going out to conquer, but not in righteousness. Uh, his, he, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. His clothes was, his clo he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, that's you and me, the church, followed him in, on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron in fulfillment of Psalm 2, that great messianic psalm. He's going to come and rule righteously and in perfect justice. You know, right now we don't have that. The innocent often are found guilty. The guilty often get off scot-free. You know, if you think our criminal justice system is perfect, you need to think again. It's the criminal injustice system. Uh, it may be better than most, but it's filled with injustices, let me assure you. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the second coming... Uh, is something that uh, makes my top ten list. And then the millennial reign of Christ. I talked about um, this earlier. Uh, if we look at God's plan of the ages, you know, we're in that final last days, if you will. There's going to be the final, the, the completion of Daniel's 490-year plan, which according to Daniel 9, 24 to 27, was put on hold after the 483rd year. Daniel tells us that. It won't start up again the final seven years until the peace treaty is signed, Daniel 9, 24. And then, uh, and then, and then it transitions us right into uh, the, kingdom, uh, the kingdom age. And so at some point, we're going to end up in 
of the kingdom. And it'll start with the, the millennial phase of the kingdom on the old earth, and then it'll eventually become the new heavens and new earth. That's why on my charts I like to call it the messianic kingdom. Some people you'll hear call it the millennial kingdom. That's not wrong, but it's a little confusing because it makes it sound like the kingdom's only a thousand years. The kingdom is not a thousand years. It's an eternal kingdom. When Christ takes the throne, he will rule forever and ever. We've already looked at that. There are a lot of passages that talk about it, but Daniel 7, we looked at earlier, verses 13 and 14. He will reign uh, forever and ever. Uh, God's promise to David was that uh, his throne would be established uh, forever. Uh, Daniel 2, I think we looked at that earlier too. He's going to reign and his kingdom will stand forever. It will never be destroyed. It will never uh, pass away. It's an everlasting kingdom that shall never be uh, destroyed. In Psalm 72, again, uh, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. So he came once and he was crowned with thorns. When he comes back the next time, he will take the throne that is rightfully his and rule and reign uh, for all eternity. Uh, the final judgment of Satan. I mean, that's a pretty exciting one to think about, isn't it? Uh, when the enemy finally is defeated, and that happens again at the end of the millennium when Satan is judged, uh, at the end of the thousand-year portion of the kingdom. If we look at my end times judgments again, now we're down here toward the end. There's only one judgment left, and that's the judgment of all unbelievers by the way, you know, again, going back to that theodicy, what gives God the right? People will say, I just don't see how a loving God can send anybody to hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. He's doing everything he possibly can to keep anybody from going there. See, God warned us in the garden. I love you so much. You're my highest pinnacle of creation. You're made in my own image. Please, whatever you do, don't eat from that one tree. Because in the day that thou eatest thereof, you shall surely die. That was a warning if, out of love. In the same way that we might say to our child, don't touch the hot stove or don't play in the street. And yet what did we do? We marched right over and took a great big bite. And at that moment, if God is God and he is God, justice had to prevail. I mean, it's all, when people say, I don't see how a loving God could send anyone to hell, it's almost as if they think in that pivotal moment of mankind when we ate the proverbial apple, it's almost as if they think that at that moment, God should have said, oh, don't worry, no problem. I was just kidding about that death thing. Uh, no big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. Don't worry about it. You're fine. Now, just think about the implications of that. If God had said that, it would have made him out to be a fickle, unfaithful, untrustworthy, lying God. And we can never trust anything he ever said. But God is God. He cannot lie. He is perfectly just. And so in justice, death came on the earth. And God at that moment, by the way, would have been perfectly just for everyone, Adam and Eve included, to spend eternity in hell. That's justice. But God in his everlasting love and mercy also created a way for justice to be served blood to be shed, death to happen, and yet still you and I don't have to pay our own penalty. That's grace and mercy, right? See, death had never been a part of the world before the fall of mankind. Imagine what it must have been like for Adam and Eve right after they sinned. What did God do? He killed two animals, took their skins, and clothed Adam and Eve. I mean, those were their friends, <laughs> They'd never seen an animal die before. They'd never seen blood like that before. And that, that was serious. That showed them the seriousness of sin. And then Cain and Abel, you know, why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's wasn't? Because Abel's was a blood sacrifice. Cain's wasn't. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22. And so justice had to be served so God doesn't send anyone to hell we did that on our own what God does is make a way for us to not have to go there now just as God did not force Adam and Eve to sin it was free will God did God created mankind in his image which means we have volition he didn't create a bunch of automatons or robots that had no choice in anything Adam and Eve could have chosen to eat the apple or not they chose to eat it 
in the same way, God's free gift of eternal life is, must be freely offered and freely received. God doesn't force anybody to get saved. Forced love is no love at all. That compulsion isn't love. So God says, whosoever will, let him come. I've made the way. I've paid the price. I freely offer it. All you have to do is receive it. And just as in the physical realm, a gift is received by physically clasping it with your hands, and now it went from you to me. If I offer Brother Dwayne a gift for his birthday, happy birthday, Dwayne, here's your gift. As soon as he takes it, it's his. It belongs to him. Spiritually speaking, how do we receive the gift of eternal life? Again, 160 times it tells us faith is the mechanism for receiving it. Now, I know the church has done a a pretty good job with the devil's help of confusing the word faith, redefining it, making stuff up, especially coming out of the Reformation with the tripartite definition of faith. I get into that in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. But faith just means confidence or assurance. We know what faith means. You believe something. Do you believe it or not? You don't have to promise to obey or pledge allegiance or, you know, it's not a bilateral contract like I said earlier. It's simply receiving it. How do we receive it? Faith is the instrumental cause of receiving eternal life. We, we trust Christ. The minute faith meets the gospel, the result is eternal life every time. And so God, in his great grace and mercy, provided a way for us to be saved. And so, you know, that's grace, justice, and mercy. God is all that God is applies to all that God is. It's the attributes of God. He's not more gracious than just. He's not more just than loving and so forth. He is all those things. But they all coalesce at the cross. And they all coalesce in John 3, 16. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's justice. The penalty was paid. Blood was shed. That whoever believes in him should not perish. That's mercy. See, mercy is withholding of judgment withholding of punishment should not perish but have everlasting life there's grace grace is undeserved favor or merit an undeserved gift justice is getting what you deserve mercy is not getting punishment that you do deserve grace is getting a free gift you didn't deserve so let's say as i was driving here over the last four days that we had gotten pulled over we didn't uh, would not have been surprising if we had but we didn't Let's say I get pulled over for speeding and the officer walks up to my car. Of course, I do what every God-fearing believer does the minute you get pulled over. I start praying. <laughs> Lord, please let him give me just a what? Warning. Warning. Thank you. Yeah, I can tell you guys are a bunch of sinners too. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, he comes up and let's say he takes my license, my registration. He comes back a little bit later. If he were to write me a citation, if I'd been speeding, that would be justice. I get what I deserve, right? If he were to say, this time I'm just going to give you a warning, no citation, that would be mercy, withholding of judgment. But if he were to pull out his wallet and hand me a $100 bill, that would be grace. See the difference? And at the cross, justice was served because one man had to die. And only the perfect man can do that. By the way, I couldn't pay for your sins and you couldn't pay for mine. You know why? Because we have enough sin on our own shoulders. So it had to be the perfect God-man who had room on his shoulders to pay the sins for the whole world. 1 John 2, 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Propitiation means the satisfaction of God's wrath. That's justice. And then he paid for our sins, but then he then offers freely to all the gift of eternal life, which is grace and mercy. We don't have to spend eternity in hell, and we get eternal life in heaven. And so nobody, all that was all a side note, uh, but nobody can shake their fist at God and say, well, why do you send people to hell? If you go to hell, you have nobody to blame but yourself. If you don't want the gift, I mean, we can't force it on you, right? It's free for the taking. Jesus paid it all. Um, so the final judgment of Satan, you know, at the midpoint of tribulation, he's going to be cast out of heaven. Right now he has the power to come and go. Remember, he went in Job up to accuse uh, Job and uh, God says, where do you come from? He says, I come to and from to and fro on the earth. Well, the midpoint of the tribulation, as we gear up to the final battle of Armageddon, he's cast out of heaven. He no longer has access there. But then at the end, we read that the devil and Satan, the dragon of old, that serpent of old, 
is, who, had been, who was bound up for a thousand years during the millennial phase of the kingdom. And at the end of the kingdom, he's going to be set free for one final battle, and he's going to be cast in the lake of fire and brimstone and tormented day and night forever and ever. Hallelujah. And then the final judgment of believers happens at that same time. Again, at the end of the millennium, prior to the new heavens and the new earth. This is one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture. Uh, the great white throne judgment. I saw the great white throne, and he who sat on it, from whose face the whole earth and heaven fled away. Because at that point, they realize it's over. The earth's about to be destroyed. You know, as great as this earth is, you know, you've got some beautiful oceanfront property here in Florida. We've got beautiful Rocky Mountains in Colorado. Just imagine that's what it looks like after the judgment on sin, the great flood. Imagine how beautiful it must have been even before sin. So the whole earth is going to face a judgment. The whole earth is fleeing from him. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. This is where, if you're counting on that 99th percentile to get you in, good luck with that. You could have semi-truckloads full of books containing every good work you've ever done, and it will not be enough. Only one book that matters, and that's the book of life. Uh, and your name is written in there the moment you trust in Christ. Each one was judged according to his works. Thankfully, that's not how we're judged. We're judged based on the work of Christ and his grace and goodness. Anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into a lake of fire. They will hear those sad words, I never knew you. After World War I, a French general asked his gardener to plant an oak tree in a particular part of his estate. And the gardener noted that the tree the general had chosen was slow growing and wouldn't reach maturity for nearly a century. And the general replied, oh, well, in that case, there's no time to lose. Plant it this afternoon. Well, there's no time to lose, folks. Trust Christ today if you don't know the Lord. Um, and then finally, the new heavens and the new earth. The, one, the final one on my top ten list, that happens at the very end when all things are made new. I saw a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Uh, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's a key Old Testament phraseology that refers to the intimacy and the final you know, unity without the presence of sin. Uh, God wipes away every tear from their eyes. The former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. It is done. It is done. So, uh, waiting. The top ten list, the rapture of the church, the glorification of our bodies, the judgment seat of Christ. The unveiling of the Antichrist and the outpouring of God's wrath, the second coming of Christ, followed by the millennial reign and the final judgment of Satan, the final judgment of unbelievers, and then the new heavens and the new earth. So my question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? So we'll take a break now for lunch. Let me mention again just a couple of quick Reminders, you can check out my books, Spirit of the Antichrist. If you're watching online, you can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org, or if you want to go home tonight and kind of check it out, I've got the entire preface to both books there, as well as the entire table of contents, even down to the secondary sub-sections of each chapter, so you can kind of see the content that we talk about. Other end times books that we have are The Great Last Day's Deception and What Lies Ahead. I've mentioned the chart books and the new DVD series, uh, What in the World is Going On. Uh, and uh, other than that, let me pray, and we will uh, take a break for lunch.